Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. And this week, we're covering Die Hard with a Vengeance because it celebrated its 25th anniversary back in May. And I never get tired talking about the Die Hard movies, especially the first four movies. And I felt like, you know what, this is a perfect opportunity to talk about the one set in New York City because of quarantine, I've been missing new york city um a lot because i hadn't done like any kind of trips into the city from long island earlier in the year and i kind of made myself like oh i'll get there eventually i said that back in like late january early february and then as life planned out and i was like okay i guess it'll be uh, sometime until i get back in there so i I played the new like the spider-man from ps4 and watched die hard with avengers because it was just to get that kind of new york feel but in order to cover a movie so much about New York, I had to call upon a person who knows the city very well and is also a member of the Real Fans podcast family, Mr. Michael Lyons. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing good, Tim. Thanks for having me back. And yeah, always love the opportunity to talk about a, a really good New York movie like this one, for sure. I knew I didn't have to sell you too hard because A, it's an anniversary, and I know you're big on anniversaries, and B, it's, yep. it's a New York movie, so I'm like, okay, that, that's a, it's an easy sell right there. And also, you did you did mention when you, when we were talking about it or texting about it, I also do love you know a well-themed movie, and this is a good end-of-summer movie, as you said, too, because it takes place kind of at the end of summer, beginning of the school year, so that works out well, too. Exactly. It was one of those like serendipitous things. Like when I was texting you, like I I wasn't conscious enough until I was actually messaging you. I'm like, oh wait, this also plays into it. So and bam, um. So you're right. So like the the stars aligned to do this review. But like I said, we're talking about Die Hard with a Vengeance uh, for the 25th anniversary. I know we don't usually do normally do anniversaries on this show, but we're making an exception for this show. So let's jump into our review. It right now. Okay. Now, uh, Michael, I'll ask you first, before you get into your personal histories with um, Die Hard 3, what was your history with the Die Hard franchise overall prior to this movie? Yeah, so I can remember the first Die Hard in 88. I actually wound up seeing that on uh, opening night because I was absolutely and utterly fascinated by the whole marketing of that film. I remember uh, the trailer's um, really calling out the fact that, you know, I forget the exact phrasing in the trailer, but it was something like this summer, have the adventure of your life in six track Dolby stereo sound and 70 millimeter projection. You know, they really just made it seem like one of the kind of big disaster movie type events of the seventies. And I thought that was really, really cool. And, um, didn't look like anything else I had seen in a while. It kind of did harken back to things like The Towering Inferno from the 70s, and I loved all those disaster movies. I was kind of intrigued by the fact that Bruce Willis was in it because before Die Hard in 88, he was not known as an action 
star. So um, I remember just being incredibly curious about the original Die Hard and running out to see it opening night. It opened in the middle of the week on a Wednesday back in 88. And I loved the movie. And it was one of those movies where, um, if I remember correctly, it did pretty well at the box office, but it was like a real word of mouth hit throughout that summer. Like I remember everybody at work and I was going to college then when I went back to school, everyone was talking about uh, Die Hard and little by little, it really gained a lot of uh, momentum. And then of course, when they announced that Die Hard 2 uh, was coming out um, two summers later, I mean, um, by then, I think thanks to home video and cable, Die Hard had built up such a, such a big audience that of course, opening weekend, I ran out to see uh, Die Hard 2 uh, as well. And this one, I was really excited uh, about, not that I wasn't excited about Die Hard 2. And I, I, I love Die Hard 1, 2, 3. Um, Die Hard 2, I think a lot of people w w might agree that it seems a little copy and paste of the first movie in terms of the story. You know, instead of in a building, it's in an airport. It even takes place at Christmas. But I mean, I just I love the second one for the fact that we're back in that diehard world and we're back with John McClane um, and some of the other characters from the first one as well. And then I remember a couple years after that, I thought we weren't going to see another diehard. And then I read a little blurb um, where I got all of my movie information back in the 90s, which was either Entertainment Weekly or Premier Magazine that they were making a third Die Hard movie. It was going to be set in New York City with Bruce Willis coming back and going up against a mad bomber and that um, John McTiernan was going to return as director. So I was very excited about that because, um, and we'll probably get into this, um, I think Rennie Harlan did a really great job with Die Hard too, but I think John McTiernan has such a great, cinematic style to what he does not just in action scenes but in all the scenes that he shoots that i was very excited that he was coming uh back to the franchise so that's kind of my relationship with the first uh three movies uh of the franchise um i did like uh live free and die hard i thought that was uh, a fun movie uh, talk about theming another fun movie to watch around july 4th as well because it takes place around july 4th um and the the fifth one which was um I just had the title. What's the title of the fifth one again? Um, um, a good, a good, a good day, day to, yeah. to die hard, right? Um, that one I thought was a little disappointing. Um, and uh, I know this isn't the podcast for uh, that movie. And I guess if we ever talk about it for that anniversary, we can talk about it then. But um, it just kind of, it, it felt, that movie just kind of felt... Um, I don't want to say it felt like they were making it on the cheap, but um, it just kind of felt like they got Bruce Willis back and just kind of plugged him into this uh, story. And it just didn't feel connected to uh, the other movies. So um, that's kind of my thoughts on the franchise itself. Very nice. I think you, you're you on to something that it seems like, hey, we could shoot Eastern Europe because it's cheaper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, hey, we can we can do another um, Die Hard movie, and it's it's curious because like the first Die Hard movie was made for about somewhere it's roughly between twenty five and thirty five million dollars, and it would go on to make between one hundred thirty nine and one hundred and forty two million dollars at the box office. 
and the movies that continue to make more money afterwards. And you're right. I mean, the 70 millimeter um, experience was a kind of a big thing uh, for movies, especially it was a big resurgence in uh, the 1980s for the those like disaster movies and like late 70s and, and 80s movies. Because, like, they had stopped doing, like, the Roadhouse show, like, the Roadshow versions of uh, movies where it's like, oh, like, you're going to get a, you're going to wear a tux to a movie, and you're going to get a booklet, and you're going right. to have an overture, an intermission, an epilogue, like, things right. like yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, or How the West Was Won, and things of that nature. And 70mm came back for, like, hey, for Back to the Future, or Empire Strikes Back, or... Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade because like hey we have the the best film prints out there and the biggest sound system possible at the time and of course Die Hard fit that that mold and but it's just unfortunate by the mid 1990s like because of I guess Dolby Atmos like theaters or just like digital uh, um, sound systems that kind of made that little m- mute at the moot at the point excuse me yeah. um and you're right. I, I never realized. Yeah, you could watch Die Hard Four as a Fourth of July movie. I never put that together. Yeah. <laughs> well, if there's a holiday to connect to a movie, or vice versa, I'll I'll find it. Just check in with with me, and if not, I'm not available. Just check in with Andy DiGenova, and um, you know, we you you want a movie connected to a holiday? We'll help you out. <laughs> like, I, there's a reason why I made that joke. Like, you could probably find a movie about Arbor Day, and somewhere out there, and it might even be animation. I mean, anything nature-wise, probably, yeah. You know, Pocahontas would be a good one for Arbor Day, but also Thanksgiving. Wally, great one for Arbor Day. There you go. That makes that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, and I had been a huge fan of these movies because, like, my mom was, she loved, she adored Bruce Willis because he wasn't like um, Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, like, mountain, like, men of mountain kind of thing, like, where they're just, like, Muscles on Muscles, uh, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, where they seem gargantuan compared to the modern man or the everyday man. And that's why Die Hard was so appealing, because it's, of course, it's exaggerated realism that that John McClane could survive all the things he goes through in the first Die Hard movie. But at least, like, it wasn't like Commando, where Arnold's literally mowing down wave after wave after wave of uh, soldiers coming at him. Right. And then with, like, of course, by the time this one came out, like, it's because, like, born and raised in New York. And so, like, of course, like, a lot of people always, like, kind of gravitate to movies about the city. And I remember seeing this so much, like, on VHS. I think this is the one I, I think I watched this the most as a kid because I think because it starts so quick. And, like, it it really gets into it, which is very different from, you think of the earlier John McTiernan movies because... It's a good 25 minutes of setup in both Predator and Die Hard before any action kind of breaks out. Yeah, that's true. And so, like, and then that's why it's like, okay, Die Hard with a Vengeance, like, all right, it's, um, it gets right into it and everything. But, like, how this movie came about, it's interesting because other, like, the, the only movie that was written specifically to be a Die Hard movie was A Good Day to Die Hard. Um, the first movie was based off a book called Nothing Lasts Forever by Roger Thorpe, which is going to be an age, which, which was a sequel to the book called The Detective, which was turned into a movie starring uh, Frank Sinatra. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 
<laughs> which means when they were making that movie, they had to offer that movie to Sinatra at first. So Die Hard could have starred a very old Frank Sinatra. <laughs> oh my God, that would have been a much different film. That like I, I, I'm pretty sure when myself, Jamie Julian, Guy Milks, when we covered Die Hard on Please Rewind, the RF Four RM Retro Show, I think we even joked about like if we filled out the rest of the cast with the Rat Pack. Or I may have just had that conversation in general, like how funny it would be. Like Al Powell is Sammy Davis Jr. <laughs> Dean Martin is Hans Gruber. That has to be a musical number at one point. Right. Um, Die Hard 2 was based off uh, like another script that got turned into, die, turned into a Die Hard movie. And same with this one, because the original uh, script was called Simon Says by Jonathan Hensley, who would go on to make movies like he had made the first... Um, not the first, but the second live-action Punisher movie with Thomas Jane, 2004. And, um, and he also wrote The Saint with uh, Val Kilmer, which came out a couple mm. years after Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, and it was like the first hour of Die Hard with a Vengeance, it's pretty much Simon Says, um, like to a T, just changed the names around a little bit. It's the second half of the movie where it's like, okay, this is a full Die Hard movie. That's when... He had like a a month to rewrite the script to make it a diehard movie because otherwise it was just sitting in development hell. Mm. And I think it's it's curious because Mutant is coming off of Last Action Hero, and I wonder I'll ask you this question here: Do you think the reason why Mutant came back to the series because Medicine Man was not the biggest hit and Last Action Hero was kind of a bomb? You think he came back to Die Hard to? save his career or do you think like if blast action here was a hit do you think he would have done the third diehard movie now that's that's a good question i was thinking about that as i was watching this the other day because i started kind of running through in my mind like what were his movies after diehard the original diehard leading up to this um and i realized that um two years prior was last action hero which of course we've talked about and you've discussed on uh please rewind and um, you know, we know that that is, you know, a, a notorious, um, I hate to call it a bomb because it still was somewhat successful and it's pretty beloved by a generation that grew up with the, the film and who loves Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it wasn't the, the runaway blockbuster success that Jurassic Park was, uh, that same summer that it came out in. Um, and, and I think that was probably, if, if I had to guess, yeah, it was probably part of, John McTiernan's thinking that, you know, if he could come back to the diehard franchise, first off, there'd be a lot of noise about that ahead of it. Like we got the original director of the first diehard back uh, to do this uh, movie. And um, I think he also knew that this probably had its built in audience. Um, it was going to be a big summer movie for the summer of 95. So there was, you know, a lot going for it so yeah i probably think that that had some of it to either you know save his career or maybe not so much save his career i should say but maybe just like kind of right the ship a little bit yeah like it i don't want to say like it's i don't want to sound cynical and say it was just a calculated um career move for there because i think he it's not like he's phoning it in with this movie i think he came to tell the best story he can no um, because there are times when you see filmmakers come back to series, like any kind of set, or they come back to a genre that made them famous, and it seems like there are tails between their legs, and it seems a little. It doesn't seem. It seems half-hearted. Yeah, yep, and and you don't get that feeling here at all. I mean, 
you know, I contend that the very first Die Hard um, is one of is one of the best, and some would say some would say the best, but I think one of the best action movies um, ever made. And you know, he has such great. Uh, he has a a very unique way and almost like a, a a visceral way to film an action scene and you see that throughout die hard with a vengeance as well so you're absolutely right i mean he put his all into this movie exactly and like so even though like the early developments of this movie like i mentioned before like it's this is based off a script by jonathan hensley but like one of the early ideas before that was that it was a um like one of the original scripts is going to be on a caribbean cruise line and it was going to be like it was rejected because it was too similar to under siege and then like the the, the script was called trouble uh, trouble shooter and it was later repurposed to become speed to cruise control oh gosh yeah yeah um <laughs> and then simon says be prior becoming diehard with vengeance was going to be a uh, Brandon Lee vehicle, but obviously that did not happen because of the unfortunate passing of Brandon Lee on the set of The Crow. Mm. Um, and so they decided, like, okay, we're going to make a Die Hard movie. And one of the f- earlier, because of the they were supporting role of Zeus, uh, was initially going to go to Lawrence Fishburne, who turned down the role and eventually went to Sam Jackson. And at this point, it was the third movie that Sam L. Jackson did uh, with Bruce Willis, but it was the first time they actually shared scenes together. Because prior... Huh. Because, yeah. yeah because pulp, pulp go, Fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And Loaded Weapon. Oh, I, I forgot Bruce Willis is in Loaded Weapon. Yeah, making fun of himself as McLean, as they, they the, the goons accidentally blow up the wrong trailer, thinking it's uh, Emilio right. Estevez's. That's right. And then it would eventually go on to star in both Unbreakable and Glass. So it is mm. curious, like, they've been in so many movies together. Um, but the movie opens up in New York City, and as, like, we see the early morning of the city waking up, and it's just the sun bleached and everything because it's the hot day. Everybody's going about their business. Everybody's starting their day. And then the Bondwood Tele Department Store, it seems like it's going to have a huge sale for, like, going back to school. However, it blows up and cars go flying, glasses everywhere, and I, I, I don't want to start it on such a dark note, but it's just this thing, it's a, it, the scene's a little different nowadays. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it definitely, you know, back in 95, that immediately pulled you into the movie, and also, you know, the song summer in the city playing over the soundtrack and the way they do the title at the end, the title at the beginning, rather kind of slamming onto the screen with the music. Um, but you're absolutely right to watch that scene today, you know, after the events of September 11th and other things that have happened, uh, around the world. Um, it's definitely a much different vibe than it was first watching it in summer of 95. Right. I mean, I'm trying to remember, when was the first World Trade Center bombing? Was that 95 or 96? Uh, the first bombing that I think took place in one of the parking garages was, I think, two years prior to this in 93, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think there was like a car that had a car bomb in it. And, um, you know, it did some damage, but... Um, 
yeah, it's just kind of strange to think back 25 years ago watching this movie. Uh, you know, you'd watch a scene like this and it just seemed like fiction, like something from an action movie, you know? Yeah. And that's why I, like, I, it's, I don't want to sound like a old man here. It's like, well, that's something that you can't really get rid of, get, get away with today. Or at least you're not, you can't shoot that in New York. Right. Right. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Cause yeah, watching this, they, it looks like they set everything up, the cars, the explosions, everything. And, um, you know, actually pulled it off right there on the street, closed down the street and everything. So that's pretty incredible to think of. Yeah, I like like I watched like one of the like the the making ofs that they had like done during the, the during the production of the movie, which is it's so nineties because it says Don LaFontaine is the one narrating this behind the scenes featurette. <laughs> I think I remember that. I think that was on like Fox Television or something a couple days before the movie opened. I could totally see that because Fox is like, <laughs> which would like these things would later be like so many Fox movies had these kind of behind the scenes featurettes and they would later be featured in like FX uh, TV broadcasts. Like, hey, we can extend the broadcast a little bit longer by putting these featurettes here so we can get more commercial time. Right, right, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they had like five cameras set up. They practiced for weeks and Terry Leonard was like, the, I believe, the stunt coordinator for this who has been who's done stunts since the 1960s up until, like, 2018. So, like, he is a legend in the business. Like, like just for one example, like, he drove the Christine car that was on fire in John Carpenter's Christine. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, like, and he like, did, like, stuff, like, up until, like, the most recent, like, Fast and Furious movies. So, yeah, like, it's, like I said, legend. And then we cut to... Wow. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And so then we cut to the police precinct when it's um, pandemonium, as you can imagine. And that's when Walter Cobb, the um, the police uh, captain, like gets uh, inspector, excuse me, played by Larry uh, Brigman, gets a call from a person called Simon and says, hey, um, starts giving these weird um, rhymes to him. It says, like, if... If you don't want another bomb to go off, get John McClane to go to Harlem for me. And it's, it is sinister. And the reason why I think it's so effective, at least this one moment, is that it's all like done in like this one long close up as it like arcs around him as he listens to Simon over the phone, played by Jeremy Irons. And then he's, then we see McClane up in Harlem. So how do you feel about this, this little setup here? The kind of the gimmick of Simon says that that's what McClane has to do. Yeah, I think, first off, you know, I think it shows again that, um, you know, I talked about how John McTiernan can, you know, shoot the heck out of an action scene. But I think he's just a really good filmmaker. Like, he knows how to shoot even a scene where there's not action going on. And there's there's a lot of fast-paced things going on in the uh, precinct, obviously, but it's not an action scene. And there's scenes later on just with uh, the characters, like when they're in the truck taking bruce willis to harlem and he's got the hangover and they're giving him the aspirin when they drop him off uh in in harlem that just like really well shot scenes and he's he you know mctiernan um such a good filmmaker i mean he really is like some of his scenes are you know dare i say almost spielbergian in the way that they're framed and shot and the way he moves the camera um and what's really great about the way he handles these scenes are it could have been the big explosion at the beginning to pull you into the movie. And then it could have just been standard scenes of the cops on the phone and taking the call from Simon, 
and whatnot. Um, and it all just could have been very flatly shot, but he continues that momentum and that action and pulling you into um, the the scene uh, all the way through Bruce Willis or John McClane being dropped off in Harlem. And I love the way he introduces John McClane. Like, there's no big, like, there's no big, you know, um, swell of music that comes up or something. He's just there in the back of the van with his head in his hands. And it's as if to say to the audience, yep, here's John McClane again. You know, you know him. We're not going to give you a lot of setup because if you're here watching a Die Hard movie, you obviously know who this character is. So I think it's a really, uh, really nice, uh, nice setup for uh, kind of a lot of the the tense moments that will follow. I wholeheartedly agree. And it's, Martino's not afraid to move the camera. Like, there's there's sometimes, like, a kind of, like, hey, the action scenes are very energetic and they're, like, they're fist-pumping and everything, but then you get to the dialogue scene and everything just kind of grinds to a halt. And you're right, he... He is Spielberg and, and Spielbergian in a, in, a, in several ways. Like a, like he doesn't shoot like a lot of like just like singles, like just a close of a person. Like he'll do over the shoulders, so he'll have something in the foreground and background most of the time. Very much like how Spielberg does it, and like he like if somebody looks to their left or right, like they won't like Mutiner will more often than not just whip the camera in that direction they're looking in rather than cutting. So he's literally connecting action from characters or objects with everything else in the environment and there there are times where you feel like oh a filmmaker could be very self-conscious about that and, and you feel like certain filmmakers can feel very trepidatious about that but no Terry's like no i'm gonna trust the audience here like yeah we're all in this room here and if somebody's in a room like and somebody speaks on the other side of the room you don't like turn your whole body you just turn your head to look at them and that's how he right. kind of approaches that with a filmmaking and you're also right where, like, you think of the, the first three Die Hard movies, how is McClane introduced? The first one, he's terrified as the plane lands. Two, his car is getting uh, towed and he's, he's arguing with a cop. And three, he's incredibly hungover and he's downing uh, aspirin like they were candy. Yeah, yeah. And so he's told to go to Harlem where the sign has hate speech on there. And mm-hmm. wait for to get contacted with somebody from the terror by I guess the terrorist, and he has to. The, the cop said like his backup has to drop by ten blocks. And if anybody knows in New York, like ten blocks, like if something happens, there's no way they can save him. He's they're <laughs> right. so yeah. far behind. I love what is the line that Cobb says to him. We'll be back to pick you up in fifteen minutes. He says that's good because I expect to be dead in four. <laughs> <laughs> And in order to not incite real violence, um, it was a blank board on the day, and they CGI uh, these sayings on there. Oh, that's interesting. Because like, even if they put out press screens like, hey, we're doing this for a movie and everything like that, there was going to be some kind of something, some kind of incident would have happened one way or the other. I mean, heck, yeah. I, I, I was listening to another podcast doing a commentary track for Halloween 4 and there's the scene near the end when Daniel Harris is running away from Michael Myers and towards her school and they cleared every, like they notified all the neighbors and everybody in this house this little block as Daniel Harris run across from one lawn to another however one of the house owners uh, 
was away on vacation when he got the notice. And so when they're shooting this scene, they just hear this little girl screaming, help me, help me, as she runs down the block. And they actually, they actually did call the cops thinking there's a little girl in danger. Oh, jeez. Wow. Yeah. So things like that, I think, like, yeah, it was expensive to the CGI, the, uh, the sayings on the, the board, but I think it was for the best. Um, but this, totally, yeah. Yeah. And this is when we're introduced to Zeus Carver, played by Samuel Jackson and his nephews, who who's very firm with his nephews not to accept stolen goods from uh, questionable people in their neighborhood. And then when he mm-hmm. sees Bruce Willis wearing the sign out there, he's like, uh, I got to do something because otherwise this guy's going to be dead in a few minutes. Yeah. And I, and I I enjoyed their interaction at the very beginning because they because Zeus is so like is like is something wrong with you, sir? Because no rational person would wear a sign saying that in this neighborhood, but that results in a um, a few other residents there not liking what's going on and uh, take issue with what uh, McLean is wearing. Yeah, that's uh, you know it it's really interesting because. Like there's a really interesting and really great dynamic between Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. They're really great together in this movie, like great chemistry and then really good dynamic between the two characters, too. Um, And like this scene and like the the tension in this scene, I I almost feel like Die Hard with a Vengeance is like a more popcorn movie version of the really good 70s New York crime thrillers like French Connection or Serpico or Dog Day Afternoon or even Taking a Pelham 123 where you know I think this movie does has have some things to say um and some messages that it wants to get across about you know race relationships and um you know even you know violence and police that you know, just watching it again in our current um, tone of of the world right now was really interesting because, you know, it it was in some ways still commenting on the things that people are commenting on today. So I think it has all that in it and it has that same drama that you feel from movies like Serpico or Dog Day Afternoon. But then it also has the feel of, uh, of a more lightweight summer blockbuster as well, you know. I, I agree. I mean, because like Celine Lamette directed Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico. Yeah. And this does seem more of like a Celine Lumet New York rather than a Martin Scorsese's New York. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, in which a few of the uh, guys standing on the street seeing the sign with the hate speech on there take umbrage with uh, John McClane here. And Zeus is like, you gotta, you gotta do something. You gotta get the hell out of here. But that's when McLean says, "Hey, I'm a cop. I, I was told to do this. Otherwise, that the guy's gonna blow up another uh, building here." And he's like, "Ah, shit." Violence does break out. Um, Zeus is cut by one of the uh, members on the street, but he's quick thinking, grabbing the gun that's taped to McLean's back, and able to get him out of there. Luckily, a cab is it pulls up in the area. They jump in their cab and they get the hell out of there. And they head down to. Uh, the one police plaza, even though McLean takes a bottle to the head and they're both bleeding. <laughs> and I, I, I love a little yeah. moment here when they get into the cab. The cab driver just pulls out his mind to give it to Zeus. He's like, I'm yeah. not robbing you. Put that away. 
there's also the great line here about Zeus's name, he, where Bruce Willis keeps calling him Jesus. He goes, why do you keep calling me Jesus? That's what the guy called you back there, Jesus. He said, no, he said, hey, Zeus, my name is Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> like, like uh, Zeus? Like, uh, yeah, like fa- as in Father Apollo, Mount Olympus? Like, don't mess with me or I'll shove a lightning bolt up your ass. Zeus, you got a problem with that? <laughs> no, I don't have a problem with that. It's like, it's an outstanding moment from there. Like, yeah, it's it's reason why you cast Samuel L. Jackson in a movie like this. Because it's so, like, yep. he has so much gravitas to a line like that. Yeah, totally. And so, uh, McLean is taken back to One Police Plaza, Plaza and is stitched up and given some uh, clean clothes. But what's when they discovered there's another bomb that's in Chinatown that was very similar to the device used in the department store where it's not dynamite or C4 or anything like that. It's like these two liquids that mix together to make a new explosive, um, which is like, I think, like a little interesting take. So it makes this one wholly unique onto itself, the kind of the use of the device. Yeah. And, then, and this is when we get the start the phone call conversation between um, Inspector Cobb, McLean, and Simon and um, Zeus. And I do enjoy uh, the banter that they all had there when McLean's just like pushing his buttons, uh, much to the chagrin of Cobb, who's just saying, like, can you take this situation seriously? And you're pushing the psychopath to the point that he's stuttering on the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think also really good story moments here uh, that they slip in that set up what will happen later. Like when Bruce Willis is in the truck and they're talking about the lottery numbers and he asks um, uh, he asks one of them, you know, oh, do you still play your badge number? And the guy says his badge number and that comes into play later on. And um, the bomb expert, who's just hysterical, um, demonstrating the bomb by putting a little bit of it on the the um paper clip and then blowing up the chair um, <laughs> you know that and that comes into play uh later as well so um you know not just like r- really good scenes but really good and effective storytelling as well because they kind of plant those seeds in our mind for when they come up later you're right it is excellent um setup and payoffs that happen here like okay so mclean knows how the devices work and like you can mix these two very gently and they can blow up something that's not as extreme as a an entire building they can blow up something smaller and when charlie throws the paper clip to blow up the chair and the colleen the cop next to it is like charlie you're gonna be wearing that chair up your ass and charlie's just like <laughs> giddy's the school kid he's like oh this, this is really cool um i have a, i have a funny story the actor who plays charlie and i wish i knew his name i should have looked it up on imdb um uh, years ago, now it's probably about 10 years ago, I was home on a visit to to New York and went in to see with my family on Broadway. They had a musical version of The Addams Family on Broadway with Nathan Lane and B.B. Newworth uh, as Gomez and Morticia. And throughout it, I'm watching the play and I'm saying, who the heck is that playing Uncle Fester? Why do I know that actor? And I looked in the playbill during the intermission, and sure enough, it's the actor who plays Charlie, the bomb expert in Die Hard with a Vengeance. So I was like, thank you. Now I know where I've seen him before. That's amazing. And the actor's <laughs> name is Kevin Chamberlain. Kevin Chamberlain, yeah. He was great in Die Hard with a Vengeance, and he was great as Uncle Fester, too. That must have been a pretty amazing uh, show to see on Broadway. 
Oh yeah, that was that was terrific. That was fantastic. I mean, such talent in that in that play. Oh, I miss. I'm like, I have only gone to one play, and I would love to go to another one. But like, who knows when that's gonna ever happen again? But, I know, I know. Hey, yeah. when it does, like, how expensive are those seats gonna be with social distancing anyway? Right, I know it. Ah, <sighs> and so now, now that Zeus has in, um got involved into Simon's business by saving McLean from what was gonna happen. He orders both McLean and Zeus to the next place to go to another uh, phone to deal with some more riddles. Um, Zeus doesn't want to do this. And so McLean says, asks Charlie again, like, hey, where's that bomb from again? Uh, Chinatown. He's like, ah, shit. So he lies to Zeus saying that the new bomb was found in Harlem and not Chinatown in order to get him to Mm. be a part of the scheme here to stop the Simon. And so they do so, and they go to the new paid phone to talk to Simon, where they're given a riddle. And Jonathan Hensley, like, how these riddles came about, it's like he went to the library and got, like, every children's book, like, on, like, rhymes, limericks, and riddles, and just tried huh. to shove as many as they can into a, a screenplay. And that's why, like, all these ones are kind of, like, childhood-based um, rhymes that, he, that he, somebody would have to solve. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, and and uh, I kind of feel like Bruce Willis during all these riddles because like um, they're they're going, you know, they're they're being set up, and I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, I would not be able to solve this. All of New York would be doomed if I had to solve these riddles because, um, you know, I, I I it's funny you say that because I did wonder like were these actual uh, riddles, and it's interesting that he actually did that deep of a research to put him into the script. Yeah. I mean, like, like if anybody owns the DVD or Blu-ray copy of Die Hard with a Vengeance, flip on the audio commentary track. It is one of the most informative ones I've ever listened to with Jonathan Hensley mm-hmm. and John McTiernan um, and one of the producers. And it's not like them all in the, the room at the same time. And it's like a round table. They're all recorded separately. So they all jump in every now and then. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's very much like how the Aliens commentary is very similar, where, like, there's so many people on the cast and crew on that commentary track, but, like, you only get, like, a handful of minutes from each person because there's so many people on that commentary track. Um, and and the reason why, like, the childhood aspect is a thing, because the original, like, the germ of the idea for this movie is, like, Jonathan Hensley got into a fight with a kid and he hit him with a rock, hit a kid with a rock, and, like, the kid never messed with him again. And he was wondering, like, what would happen if that kid came back years later to get revenge? Like, what extent huh. would that kid go to in order to get revenge on revenge on, on Jonathan Hensley? And so that was the genesis of the idea here, which led to this movie. And you're right. I, these riddles, like, I'm with you. Like, yep, now I, I would have been like, well, I guess um, the time is now. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do love in this scene, though, when um, they're given the riddle over the payphone. And it's interesting how they set up, like, um, the fact that, you know, Bruce Willis or John McClane is street smart, but Zeus is book smart because Zeus is able to figure out these riddles. And I love the scene where, you know, he comes to the the uh, the answer to the number and he says it to John McClane. He goes, is that what you get? And Bruce Willis is like, 
uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> you can tell, like, Bruce Willis was, or John McClane was just kind of sitting there waiting for Zeus to figure it out so they could dial the number. <laughs> <laughs> and then even Zeus, like, second guesses were like, no, 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 like, he messed it up. Like, no, it's, it's just, like, yeah. we're just the guy, not the se- it's not the multiply of seven times seven times seven. It's, like, seven to the seventh power or fourth power. Yeah. Um, And so, like, all right, so it's five 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 zero 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 one, And luckily it was the, the number, but they didn't say, you're ten seconds late. And so they dive away from the payphone thinking it's a bomb and it was just a joke. And apparently, like, somebody giving Zeus a dollar was an ad lib on the day. Like, it- <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and if you listen real closely on the, the audio track, you just hear somebody say, like, yeah, yeah welcome to New York. I'm like, yeah, that, that's, that's the attitude right there. <laughs> that feels like that's a very New York scene. Just like, first off, very New York scene in the 90s because they're at a payphone. Um, but then, you know, like diving on the ground and yelling and nobody even paying any heed to them. And like the guy, you know, the ad lib of the guy handing, uh, Samuel Jackson, uh, the money that just feels like a very, a very New York scene. And you can even see like, um, the, uh, I love when they shoot on an actual street, in New York city, and you can see all the, the signs of the, the businesses and the buildings behind them. I just think they did a really good job of, uh, adding, good you know new york flavor to this scene right and that's the it leads so much credibility because like i guess because it's so expensive to shoot new york we're we're just conditioned to see toronto as new york right yeah Um, where everything says new york cab and new york pizza and new york just so you know we're in new york they put new york on everything when they shoot in uh, Canada, <laughs> right? Like we're gonna have this helicopter shot, so we know it's in New York. I mean, yeah, you could pay for that stock footage if you really want to, and just shoot in Canada right. and try and pull the wool over my eyes. <laughs> and so Simon says that you go to the Wall Street's uh, subway station within 30 minutes. Otherwise, a bomb plan in the Brooklyn bound three train will go off, and so they have to go 90 blocks in 30 minutes which is an impossible feat <laughs> without help from the police whatsoever and so that's when McLean decides to commandeer a taxi and rather than take the and he says that we're going to go through the park where Zeus protests like hey the park drive is always packed he's like I didn't say park drive I said through the park thus leading to this uh, yellow cab bombing through Central Park heading south <laughs> <laughs> and it has one of the best lines in the movie as Bruce Willis is driving across the lawn um, and uh, Samuel L. Jackson says to him, are you trying to hit these people? And he goes, no. And then you hear something bounce off the car and he says, well, maybe that mine. Complete with a Wilhelm scream. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> uh, of course, but it's like. It's like rock, rock, rock as he's going off or off like <laughs> ledges and everything. And eventually he's about to head over the wall of Central Park. Um, and then Zeus is like, McLean, McLean. And McLean's not <laughs> slowing down. And then he screams McLean's name as they go over the wall and come crashing onto another taxi cab. Uh, <laughs> so eventually they get ahead of the train. McLean decides to rip up the grating of the train. And jump on when he couldn't get into the station. So they split up. Uh, Zeus heads down towards Wall Street. Um, 
picking up a very, very irate stock uh, broker along the way. Yes. While McLean's investigating the bomb as it's about to blow up. So how do you feel about this little set piece with the bomb on the uh, train? Oh, God, what a great what a great scene. I think for me and there's there are so many in here. This is my favorite action scene uh, in the movie. Um, First off, just because we've never seen anything like this before. So I think that's really cool. Again, I love that it's set in the subway, so it feels very New York. And I just love the way that it's um, shot. I love the tension with Bruce Willis in the train, um, finding out that that call box is fake. Um, and they keep cutting back to Sam Jackson trying to answer the phone and everything. Um, you know, just the cutting back and forth just kind of amps up uh, the tension. And then the explosion of the train and the train kind of sailing sideways across the track, everyone running out of the way. That great shot of Samuel L. Jackson with like the camera above him coming down, like zooming down on him, like looking up in shock. Um it's just a beautifully constructed action sequence from setup to payoff. It really is. I mean, like I've never looked at a call box the same because right? of this movie. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Especially on the subway. And I'm like, I look at it. I'm like, I don't know. I hope that's a call box. <laughs> I hope it's not just a suction cup down there and we're in a diehard situation. <laughs> don't go over and touch it in case it like slides down a little like nope i'm getting off next uh, next platform that's where i don't care where i am i'm getting off now um and like the, the moment here when zeus gets to the station before the train and he hops the turn t- uh, tile turntable like the um turnstile excuse me to get down to the platform mm-hmm. resulting in a young cop going after him like originally it was supposed to be like a grizzled like very overtly like racist cop and then they decided to do it a little differently and change it like to an inexperienced cop who's probably this is probably the first time he's ever pulled his gun. Yeah. Which I think is a little more unique and adds a little uh, different kind of tension to the scene that you think that Sam better answer the phone, but I hope he doesn't get shot in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And it also kind of adds to a bit of the realism of the scene. Cause you think that maybe like a grizzled experienced cop might have taken some sort of action where, you know, a, a more rookie cop would be a little more hesitant and allow things to drag on a little bit more. Right. And I, I found it, like, maybe it's because I watched them so close to each other. I rewatched The the Incredibles recently, and there's mm. a scene where Frozone and Mr. Incredible are moonlighting as vigilantes, even though they're not supposed to, and they come barreling out of a burning building um, to safety, but they end up crashing into a... Uh, a jewelry store resulting in cops coming in, including a young nervous cop pulling a gun on them. And I'm just like, wow, this is a really weird thing that Sam Jackson's being oh, wow. threatened by um, a inexperienced, uh, shaky hand police officer. That's funny. I forgot all about that. It, it was just a weird synchronicity thing that's going on there. Um, yeah, yeah. And you're right. I mean, when Bruce throws the bomb outside the back end of the uh subway uh, car but seeing the actual chemicals mixed so it's like oh crap he better move fast and it wasn't for years until i realized how does the train get up onto the tracks when we don't see the wheels of the train uh, car and then i realized oh 
they separated from the train uh, uh, wheels themselves, and it's literally just sliding al- along the platform. And watching, uh, yeah, and like, which I kind of feel like I slapped myself in the forehead, like, duh, why didn't you realize that before? But I was watching the, like I said, I was watching the like the archive like little featurette, and apparently, like the stunt coordinator was going over them, like, yeah, you really have to run. He's telling to all the stunt performers in this scene here, because if you trip, we're not going to be able to stop it until it comes to a complete stop. So, jeez. Oh, so they rehearsed it like they rehearsed like how the the car would come across and how they would how it would proceed, and then they did a rehearsal of just everybody running towards camera, and then like all right, let's go for a take, and they ran multiple cameras, and so like like those are really stunt people running for their lives in that moment. Wow, wow. And I guess it just Man, gives well. It adds to the scene for sure. Yeah, and that the shot you mentioned before about that that camera that's like that high angle shot that goes right into a close up on Sam Jackson there as the train car goes um, as a T kill onto its side. It's one of the most iconic shots in the movie, at least in my eyes. Oh yeah, and I feel like they that summer or as the movie was coming out, I feel like they used that shot quite a bit. Like when the the quick like 30 second TV trailers for this movie um, would have obviously like a lot of quick action scenes cut together. And that shot of, you know, Samuel Jackson on the platform with the camera coming towards him, like looking up in shock, that was used in every single trailer. Well, I mean... Uh, trailers are most be like meant to be the money shots against people into the theater, so it it does it makes sense why like that would be used. But it's also funny like how many action trailers made by 20th Century Fox and elsewhere use the same music cue from Aliens as like the when Bishop and Ripley fly out of the uh, LV426 before it blows up. Like how many times you heard that music cue like that dun 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 like countdown music. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is on my brain because I was listening to the Aliens soundtrack when I was at work today, and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have to rewatch the movie. Oh, yeah. oh, poor me. I gotta do that now. <laughs> right, if you must. Like, I'm like, up oh, the universe is telling me something. I gotta listen to it. All right, fine. Twist my arm <laughs> while you're at it. <laughs> And in the aftermath of the bombing here, Wall Street is kind of shook, to say the least. Um, Yeah. All the emergency vehicles are down there. And this is when the police are approached by FBI agents um, and one mystery agent from a different agency. Like, seems like a looks like he's like from the CIA. Like, that's how spooky he's acting. And they find mm. out the Simon, we find out, is Peter Krieg, a former uh, East German's People's Army uh, colonel who is a now a mercenary for hire. And now he's at, but also, he is the brother of Hans Gruber, who McLean killed in the end of the first movie. Yeah. that That's really cool that they did that. I, I like that, um, you know, I think that helps it make it helps make it feel part of the diehard universe, the diehard shared universe, so to speak, you know, where like diehard Two had Holly, his wife, it had the reporter, the William Atherton, uh, character, um, you know, and it had, um, 
oh my gosh, I forgot the name of the uh, Powell. It had the you know police officer. Like so, it it felt part of the universe there. And I think you know having Jeremy Irons be Hans Gruber's brother um, gives it a really cool connection to the whole universe. And there's there's even that scene where you know they they say who it is and one of the other police officers says, remember that thing on the building out in L.A.? And they show a quick shot from Die Hard of uh, Alan Rickman going out the window. I just think that's really cool that they did that as like a quick flashback. Yeah, so it really is the only connective tissue to the first movie. I mean, other yeah. than maybe, I'm not even sure if that's even Bonnie Bedelia on the phone later on in the movie. We hear her for like three seconds. Um Go on. No, I was going to say, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, for some reason, like, she didn't come back for this one. I don't know if that was so they could, you know, build a little more character into McLean or if, you know, she was unavailable or didn't want to come back. Yeah, well, who, I'm unsure what, what the um, circumstances were, but this is when they get another call from Simon who says, like, hey, I just placed a 2,500-pound bomb of the liquid stuff I've been using into one of the many one of the many schools in the greater New York area. And you have up until, I think it was, what, like 3 p.m. to find out where it is. And if you, so for, but in order to find it quicker, find it a lot faster, excuse me, uh, McLean and his best friend have to run to Tompkins Square Park on foot and solve more riddles. Uh, however... The detonation device is a little kind of iffy on it because we paid a little cheap for it. And any if you use any of the the NYPD, like the N911, like radio frequencies or FBI radio frequencies, it will set off the bomb. And so stay off their radios. So McLean and uh, Zeus go running up the Tompkins Square Park. And this is when all the cops now have to mobilize to search every school in New York City without using their radios and just the the mammoth task that's before them is really staggering yeah it's it's a really cool story device because um there's even that scene like uh, a little after this where um bruce willis runs into the the two little kids on the bikes and they were stealing and the kids like look around there's no police anywhere it's like christmas you can take everything and it's a really good device to put in there because how many times in action movies where there's something big going on or some big action scene or a shooting or something and you'll say to yourself and nobody heard this and there's no police around and really this would happen but they found a way to say yeah there'd be no police around there'd be no police communication whatsoever um and it it gave them like even more freedom to use the city as kind of their playground for these big action scenes that would follow. Right. And, and I think it's this one, I, this has something a little bit better than the first Die Hard, at least in my eyes, because the cops are not complete idiots in this one, with the exception right. of Powell in the first Die Hard movie. Right. Yeah. A really good, like supporting characters as the police officers too. Like, uh, Graham Greene, of course, who was in Dances with Wolves. Um, the actor Larry Brigman, I think his name was, who played Cobb, who I've never seen in any movie before or since. He's one of those actors that 
he must be from Broadway or like, you know, a, a New York theater actor because I've never seen him uh, since this. But they just had like a really good uh, and Kevin Chamberlain, you talked about just a really good supporting cast of uh, actors, good character actors uh, to play the police that, you know, um, adds a lot to those characters and their intelligence and their credibility as well. Yeah, like because when they mobilize out there, they're like, OK. It doesn't seem like it. It's not like the like the sheriff from uh, Smoking the Bandit has to deal with this scenario. There, it's not like <laughs> right. it's like oh shit. Like, well, New York is like New York's doomed. There's no way they're gonna find the bomb. Like, no, these cops seem really good at their job, and you just hope to God they can find the bomb in time in order to stop them from blowing up a school. And I also really enjoy the moment when they it cuts to a call center. And it, like they're being flooded with uh, phone calls because because oh, all the cops are communicating through there, much to the chagrin to one of the call operators who bitches at her supervisor like, why is that we having so much uh, um, activity all of a sudden? Yeah, and he says we're taking all the uh, emergency calls, um, and I think she has an interesting line in this scene, doesn't she? Yes. And she's like, oh, yeah, like, that's going to work. And, yeah, and I, like, yeah, that's believable. Like, I'm going to marry Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> and on the commentary track, like, her supervisor, who is a a bigger dude, let's say, and I think they purposely found a very small shirt for him to wear to just to accentuate that. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> I'm just like, I hope you got paid well for that. <laughs> So all the cops uh, uh, pretty much evacuate Lower Manhattan to head uptown to search the schools. But this is when we're introduced to Simon uh, Gruber in person, played by Jeremy Irons. And all of his goons um, pretend to be, um, no, we're contractors. We're here to clean up the mess that happened here. And just don't mind all the 14 dump trucks that we were mentioned earlier that got stolen. uh, That's going to be used here (laughs) to take out what they're going to be robbing, which is the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, which has over $140 billion of gold bullion. Mm. Jeremy Irons is so good. He is so good in this movie. Um, And I think that was another exciting thing about the movie when it came out, because he's so good at playing a villain. Um, And this was the second, this would be the second summer in a row he was playing a villain, because the summer before he was the voice of Scar in Lion King. And of course he was known for reversal of fortune, won the Oscar for that. But, um, he just like, he was almost tailor made, uh, to play this role. And not only that, you believe him just the way he looks physically, like he looks like he could be Alan Rickman's brother, you know? So like, that's even believable, uh, as well. So he's just, he's just so good in this movie. And and he has great chemistry with Bruce Willis, uh, as well. Yeah, like, like if you couldn't like get him, you could maybe like maybe Charles Dance um, could have been also right. Right, candidate. that would have been great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, like, and the fact that like Jeremy Irons is still physically intimidating, even to this day, he's always been in good shape. And seeing him like as a soldier here, like, yeah, you can totally totally tell this guy was is a mercenary for hire. And yeah. On the commentary track, the, the screenwriter admits, like, yeah, you, you would need, like, a 400 dump trucks to get all that money out there when they, they really crunch the numbers <laughs> in order to accommodate all the weight 
they're like, yeah, so we're just going to have to fudge the numbers here. Like, yeah, people will buy this. 14 dump trucks. That's all you need. <laughs> but the really um, scary thing was that um, during the research process, Jonathan Hensley went to the Federal Reserve to find out, like, what kind of, like, stuff they do and how they protect themselves and everything. And so, and they were fully open with it. And then he kind of, they, the sets they have here in the movie are very similar to how the actual location is. <clears throat> and so he wrote around that. And, like, anytime you write something that's going to be involving the police or, and what have you in New York City, the New York City Police Department has to approve it. And mm. seeing all the information and, like, the methods they have to go back to rob the Federal Reserve, the NYPD got a little suspicious and called the FBI to interview Jonathan Hensley and say, like, how do you know all about the Federal Reserve? And how do you know this is an actual wow. structurally uh, weak point? And he's like, because the Federal Reserve told me, like, this would work. Like, if they, like, if they, oh, they showed me the funny. schematics. And so there was a scary time that he thought, like, Jonathan Hensley was going to be arrested because it sounded like he was, this is a ruse, and they're actually going to ro- rob the Federal Reserve. Wow. Um, which I think was kind of this could lead into one of my favorite parts of this movie is the score, because we have Michael came in scored the first three movies and how the first movie was like kind of linked to Ode to Joy. Here is with I think it's the ants come marching and I absolutely adore the score. So I just want to know how do you feel about the score of this movie? Yeah, especially in these scenes, um, I think you really notice uh, the score. And the way that it's kind of played over the the dump trucks, um, you know, pulling pulling down into the you know the explosion into the hole underground, uh, and everything. Um, even later on, he kind of incorporates in a lot of the traditional diehard, uh, you know, theme music. But I love that he gave this movie its own specific theme even reusing or kind of you know weaving in other music uh as well and uh it's very effective in this scene because it is kind of that that march music which works really well with the dump trucks kind of plowing down the street i i wholeheartedly agree but whenever i've had like to like with walking in a huge group or everything it's Nine times out of ten, I'll think of this moment here, and I'll just start humming to myself. Because of this flick. It's so true, yeah. And I love the fact that they actually had, like, we see tanks with, like, bridge launchers, and so that's how they can explain the dump trucks getting down in there. All the goons taking out the security guards, even to... Um, the one woman like the who doesn't speak, slashing and dashing one of the security guards to like, oh, two ribbons. That is that scene is that poor guy. Like I feel for that guy. He's just doing his job down there, like left alone at the end of that hallway. Um, and oh, that scene is brutal. And then Jeremy Irons like just turns to her and says, "I think he's dead, my dear." <laughs> and there's just blood all over the place Ooh. uh it's extreme uh and then yeah and what the material wanted to do for the first diehard and this one because they're both robberies he wanted to like 
the audience to rejoice in that. And so that's why when they go into the vault and they see all the 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 gold, you as the audience member say like, "Holy crap! Wow! That's immense!" And that's why I love the line like, "Like holy crap! It's Fort Knox." It's like we have ten yeah. times of what's in Kentucky. Fort Knox is a is a tourist uh, trap compared to this place. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really well done. It's kind of like when, um, uh, you know, the computer guy in the first Die Hard finally gets the lock off of the, uh, you know, off of the. Um, Was it the vault? You know the com- yeah the vault the vault. Thank you. Um, it's kind of that big reveal where you know, in a way. You know, the, the villains are in awe, and we're in awe, too, of what we're seeing. I mean, like, I hope today to see something that is beautiful as what Hans Grummer looks into that vault because of his awestruck uh, appearances looking into it with the old DeJoy playing behind there. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again, very, like, that's that, like, very Spielberg-like camera camera work, I think. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, even to the point, like, like even prior to a student of uh, Spielberg, like before J.J. Abrams, John McTiernan was making lens flares look cool way before J.J. Abrams. Oh, that's true. He was, yeah. <laughs> even to the point, like, even the first Die Hard, when McLean's going up to the roof to find out what the hell uh, Gruber was looking for at one point, and he climbs up to see where all the explosives are un- that uh, they're underneath the the rooftop. There's like a low angle shot as McLean climbs up, and it looks right into like an overhead light, and it flares right across the lens. There's a music cue when the flare goes across the lens. Like that's like there's like a little sting when that happens. Like so that's how much McTiernan loves uh, lens flares. He'll put music cues to his lens flares. <laughs> Very effective. Yes. Um, and so this is when, <clears throat> at Tompkins Square Park, uh, Zeus and McLean finally find what the, the new bomb is. And there's a three-gallon ta- uh, uh, jug and a five-gallon jug. And they have to get four gallons to the exact drop uh, in order to defuse the bomb. Now, for years, I couldn't figure out this riddle, how they get four gallons into the five-gallon jug. I, again... New York would be in trouble. I'd be in trouble. Um, and especially since he says it has to be exact. You know, I mean, how the heck do you do that with these uh, these water jugs? So, um, yeah, I, I I still didn't get it. I was like, as long as they figure it out in the movie and everything's good, then I'll feel better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, luckily, people on the Internet have um, solved it. And apparently, this this question came to a, a on an exam. According to IMDb trivia, this question was on an exam that Jonathan Hensley had on school, and he couldn't figure it out. But the solution is: you fill the five gallon jug, you pour the five gallon jug into the three gallon jug, you empty the three gallon jug, you pour the remaining two gallons into the three gallon jug, you fill the five gallon jug up. And you pour one gallon back into the three-gallon jug. Remembering it only takes one gallon. So there it goes. There's only one gallon left. There's one gallon uh, taken off the five-gallon jug. Four gallons. Uh, see, that that I that I get. I couldn't get it in the movie because they were, like, screaming back and forth so so quickly at each other. But that that makes total sense. Yeah, because when somebody writes it down like that, I'm like, huh, that does seem easy. 
But yeah, like, like on the day, I'm like, no, well, I guess I can run. Uh, or no, it's proximity. <laughs> exactly. Crap, I can't even get away from it. <laughs> I'd be like, what does Samuel L. Jackson say in this thing? Uh, it, it's almost it's almost ready to arm. Let's throw this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so they end up solving it, and they find out, like, um, like what's 21 out of 42? Um, but, like, they go to leave, and they're trying to figure out that next riddle, but that's when Zeus says, like, hey, you know some kid's going to find that, referring to the bomb. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> You're probably right. And so Zeus goes over and closes the briefcase bomb and takes it with them, which I'd be scared shitless to ride, to walk around with that thing on my side. Yeah. Same. <laughs> but we get to the scene that you were talking about before when the the, cop, the kids get uh, caught stealing from the bodega. And he says, like, the kid refers on his bike, says, hey, all the cops are into something. You could steal City Hall. And that's when... McLean realizes, oh shit, nobody's downtown, so they end up going back down to the federal, the Wall Street to find out what the hell's going on, and that's when he realizes the Federal Reserve is being robbed. Yep. And by the way, that little kid, I think they went to Central Casting and said, "Can you find us the most New York twelve-year-old uh, uh, that you have?" Because that kid is like, uh, "Look at this! It's like Christmas. You can steal anything." It's like. Uh, the the kid like seemed like he walked in off the set of like Newsies or something. He was like really New York. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so funny like he's actually British. Like yeah, that's that's what New Yorkers sound like, right? Right, right. Yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, man, like I like I don't know if he's gonna like a little bit longer. He starts snapping his fingers and saying like you're a jet, you're a jet when you're from <laughs> right, your first cigarette. Right. <laughs> Um, so Zeus and McLean head back down to the Federal Reserve and realize what's going on. Zeus goes over to the cops that are remaining, but they're not cops. They're actually, um, Simon's goons in disguise. Mm-hmm. They, he hands over the bomb. They take it with him and leave. And before Captain America, the Winter Soldier has a epic, uh, elevator fight. McLean gets into <laughs> a, an elevator with four giants and ends up taking them all out. Oof, man. And again, this is where the whole payoff of remembering uh, that police officer's badge number um, comes into play, which is really cool the way that they they do that. I even love the way like McTiernan moves the camera over so you see the badge reflected in the mirror or in the door, like the mirror door of the elevator. And then you see it on the actual um, thug himself. And oh, man, Bruce Willis taking these guys out. Holy mackerel, what a scene. And this is one of those scenes that was sensitive for TV when he climbs onto that last goon's like shoulders and headshots him and you just see his whole upper torso is just covered in blood. Like Oh man. And I remember like as a kid, like I was saying, like what like watching on TV, not remembering like why is this such an awkward jump cut from like he's shooting a few people in the elevator and then all of a sudden he's falling out of the elevator? Like, why is that all about? Real not realizing Oh, yeah, they cut out the headshot that causes right. him to be covered in that dude's ha- uh, brain matter. Oh, man. And that, of course, I remember seeing that in the theater. That elicited one of these big, like, oh, from the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Um, so McLean and Zeus realize, like, all the gold is gone, even though Zeus takes one of the bars that was left behind. <laughs> I love that. 
He's like, they're not going to let you keep that. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> and they use that as a blunt uh, object to seal a car to break in one of the windows. They they find the the tiniest piece of shit car they can get to put along, try and chase down these dump trucks. You know what? I think the car that they steal is a Yugo. Did you ever hear of a, a Yugo? It was really cheaply made Yugoslavian cars that were made, I think, in like the late 80s and early 90s. I've never, I've never ridden, I know of the U, I've never ridden in one, but that would not surprise me. Because I think if you look on the steering wheel, um, uh, you can see like the Y that was their logo for the, for the Yugo car. I imagine it was good on gas. It was kind of the AMC Gremlin of its day, or the AMC Pacer of its day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's what I love on the commentary track from the first Bad Boys, and it says, like, Michael Bay says, like, I know this is a low-budget movie, we crash a Gremlin. That's the only car we can afford to crash. <laughs> but in order to, like, because that ensuing uh, gunfight in the elevator... Uh, McLean accidentally shot the cell phone he had on his person, so he needs to get another one. Therefore, they end up stealing a Mercedes. Mer- they commandeer Mercedes Benz from a Wall Street guy who uh, doesn't take kindly to them stealing their car. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> However, Zeus left the gold bar in the Yugo, so I guess the guy's not going to be too mad about it. That's uh, right. And so they realize, like, the dump trucks are heading up the FDR drive. You know, dump trucks not allowed on the FDR drive. I've never heard uh, either yay or nay. Good question. I don't know. Um, but the, the dump trucks disappear, and they find out where the hell they're going, and they realize, oh, they're they're gonna use the the actual water aqueduct in in New York City Water Tunnel Number Three in order to find out where the hell they're going. But so, like in a slash movie, they decide to split up once again. Um, mm-hmm. Zeus is going to go to Yankee Stadium to see where that's where the uh, the riddle's going to. While McLean and a truck driver are going to head to uh, up the aqueduct. But how do you feel about this the set piece? Then when they're in the aqueduct uh, tunnel and the ensuing uh, surfing on top of a truck. This is the scene where he meets the uh, the truck driver, right? That's correct. Um, I forget the yeah. I love that. I love that character, the truck driver, who he's kind of like the um, he's kind of like the uh, Cliff Clavin uh, from Cheers of this movie, where he's got all of this you know information in his head about the aqueduct, about the project, and everything. And it's you know he's just a great like. It's one of those scenes where. You know, Andy DiGenovo says, you know, he uses that quote. Um, I think it was Shakespeare was that there's no small parts, only small actors. Um, and it's very true of that actor in that scene because, um, you know, he makes the most of that little scene that he's in. But it's also a good story point because him being this kind of like useless font of uh, or this font of useless knowledge allows Bruce Willis to find out you know, the, what was it? The 21st president was Chester A. Arthur. And that's the name of the school. So there was just a really cool way of like shorthand of getting that information. Um, I, I think the, probably the surfing scene on top of the truck, not, not bad. I mean, it's, it's a good action scene, 
But then him popping up out of the pipe at the same moment that Samuel L. Jackson is driving by, that's that that's stretching the coincidence bar just just a little bit. And I remember critics talking about that when the movie came out that, you know, they praised a lot of the action scenes in the movie. Uh, they praised, you know, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson together. But this is the one scene where they were like, really, the timing of him popping up out of that pipe and Samuel L. Jackson driving along on wherever whatever the, um, you know, road that is heading out of the city, uh, that just happened to happen at the same time, huh? <laughs> yeah, like, like there's one, like, throwaway lines is like, hey, after you go to Yankee Stadium, meet me here, up here north of the city. But, like, it's like a blink right, and you miss right. a moment. Yeah, and he doesn't say, like, I'll be skyrocketing out of this pipe filled with water at this time. Please be there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It is convenient. I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if that's the only kind of, you know, uh, unbelievable scene, so to speak, uh, in the movie, I'll take it. <laughs> I agree. I, I mean, like, it's, it's maybe we're being too generous saying that the suspension of disbelief here. But the what I really do enjoy, like when Zeus goes to Yankee Stadium and he finds the seat where they're at. And he's being watched by the sniper, and my one friend and I would ever we would we would quote the Germans like like Unda nine Unda nine it's a nine. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we had to make a decision, we would say that, and then we're like, ah, no, let's not do this. Um, and you're right. I mean, like, I don't think it's bad as the surfing and escape from L.A. Um, right, right, yes, that's true. Uh, it's like, oof, oof, just had a horrible flashback thinking about that like i love peter fonda i love kurt russell but and then i love john carpenter but like that's that seems rough for me yeah and you're you're absolutely right like there's no small parts there's only small performances and the on the commentary track the writer said like whenever you see like these really blue collar workers they're like truck drivers or things of that nature you always see them as idiots but um, have him as this kind of like wealth of knowledge that he's a well-spoken and well-read person who just happens to be a truck driver is a nice um, yeah. surprise. And I do really enjoy this. And he's the one who tells the cops like, hey, go to Chester A. Arthur Elementary School. That's where the bomb is. I love how that pays off. Yeah. Um, And it, you're like with with uh when they realize they're being followed, um, McLean, uh, when Simon realizes he's being chased by McLean in the aqueduct, the, the tube, and they, they blow out one of the, uh, the walls that's holding back the water, causing this, uh, tidal wave to come after the dump truck. Like, I think like him driving away looks cool, but see, like water is very hard to do in CGI, even to this day. And even the nineties yeah. is like it's like it's not great, but it doesn't last too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And I think you know this was kind of the early days of incorporating uh, CGI into film, like the early to mid nineties. So they were, I think, still working on the technology. So you can definitely see uh, that it that you know it was an effect added later. Yeah. And yeah, so it's convenient where uh, McLean rides one of the like exit hatches out of there and shoots out of there like he's um, 
Augustus Gloop and Willy Wonka. <laughs> and the road he's in is on the Deconic State Parkway. And if anybody who's driven like towards Albany is driven on the Taconic, and it's very it's, it's just as intense as this gunfight and shootout and chase scene that happens. Um, <laughs> and I sent this clip. I sent this chase to my friend who lived in Schenectady because I've driven on the Taconic to get to Schenectady a few times. And he's like, "Yeah, this is what's like for people who don't know who've never driven. Like, this is what it's like to the Taconic. So that's why." I, <laughs> I've always wondered, like, why do I resonate with this this chase scene so much? Oh, yeah, because it's a real place, and that's how... Because it's a two-lane road, and 65 miles per hour is, like, the minimum of people drive, and like, even when it's raining. Wow. Um, but how do you feel about this little uh, car chase here that happens that results in them going uh, topsy-turvy when they kill the bad guys? Oh, love it. It's a great car chase scene i love um you know again you have to suspend disbelief here but i love that you know he he tells you know samuel jackson like hold the f on to something and then what does he like hit the emergence pull the emergency brake up and you know goes into this spin and turns around and is you know driving in reverse firing at the car in front of him just uh you know really really great car chase really great action scene and a very creative car chase you know a lot of times um car chases can if they're not filmed well they can seem kind of what we've seen in a lot of other movies and this one's pretty unique i wholeheartedly agree i mean it has one of my favorite stunts in any car chase and it's the 180 where mclean does that and he's firing the gun at the same time it's relatively simple like in like execution but it's incredibly effective and there was a there was a lead scene that happened here that was cut out, and um, and the scene was like when they realized, oh, the Chester Arthur Elementary School, like that's where Samuel Jackson's uh, nephews are at, and that's McLean says like, why don't you call his father to come pick up uh, the kids to get him the hell out of there, and he says no, his father is dead, he died in a in a in a violent altercation in a crack house, and mm. McLean says like, "Oh, if he died in a crack house, I guess he he reaped what he sowed." Zeus fires back. So, like, no, he was the straightest guy you could ever imagine. And so McLean asks him, like, "Why the hell was he in a crack house?" And Zeus re- replies, "Because he was there to get me out." Oh wow! I kind of wish they had left that in. Hearing that. Yeah, I, I guess it's because of the pacing of the car chase. I thought it would bog it down, like with this. But then I'm thinking, like, that's 30 seconds. It would have been a really cool yeah. character moment. Oh, totally. And it, I mean, it would have brought a lot more depth to Zeus and I think a little bit more to their relationship as well. Right. And why he feels so responsible for those kids. Yeah, totally. Um, and you can only find that, like, on that featurette that you can find on like youtube now like they, they show that little clip of it on on the in, in like the making of and while this is going on hmm. we cut to chester arthur elementary school where they find the bomb um stored away in one of the refrigerators and they realize okay the bomb's here but like somebody could be watching so we gotta, gotta wait a little bit longer to see if we can get the password to shut this thing down 
much to the chagrin of some of the cops. They're like, how long are we going to wait here until somebody's just going to blow this up and going to kill everybody? And it's it's wrought retention with the, the kids here. Yeah, totally. Is this where they cut back and forth between the school and Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson on the boat? This is are they on the boat? They, they, yeah, because they they examine the guys they killed uh, during the car chase. They head in the direction where they were heading to originally. They see all the dump trucks on the boat, and they decide to shimmy down the um, the cable line they they get from the pickup truck they're in to the um, the deck of the boat because they were hooking onto like one of the big cranes on the boat. Um, even though they run out of line quick and they end up pulling the pull, uh, pickup truck off the bridge and end up falling to the boat itself. And they take out one of the goons in a pretty nasty way, too. Oh, it is it's <laughs> maybe my favorite kill in the entire movie to see the, the <laughs> high-tension cable line literally cut the dude in two. Oh, my God. And then I love how Bruce Willis is like, they find his body and they don't show it. And Bruce Willis is like, all right, you take his feet. And they're both standing on, they're both standing next to each other. With Bruce Willis with the hands and Samuel L. Jackson with the feet. That's like a good dark comedy moment there. But I love, like, McTiernan is really good also at, like, not just shooting a scene, but, like, um, shooting like concurrent action scenes that he knows are going to be edited together and doing that really well. And the editing in this movie is really good too. Um, like I, I don't know off the top of my head, you, you, you might, or you, you might uh, know who edited this film, but it's really well edited because to cut back and forth between uh, the action scenes, like they do specifically here with the two of them on the boat and then back at the school and then back to the boat and the school. And the tension is just like ramping up with both is just really masterfully done yeah i mean the uh editor i'm looking at his wikipedia page now is john wright um done he's done a bunch of big movies like he had done the running man he had done uh he would go on to do movies like he would cut uh, passion of the christ apocalypto but he did wow. so many movies with uh john mcteen he Cut Hunt for Red October. He cut Last Action Hero, Die Hard the Vengeance, and the Thomas Crown Fair, and 13th Warrior. Wow. Yeah, so like he, he, yeah, like I mean, he found his work. editor. Yeah. You're, and you're absolutely right. Like the cross cutting between the two, the storylines of like, what are we going to do with the kids? And will they find the, will they get the code in time in order to defuse the bomb? Mm-hmm. Uh, which I so McLean and Zeus somehow survive the fall to the the boat. Right. They're not their internal organs is not jello at this point. Um so they split up in order to find Simon to get the code from them. Where <clears throat> uh Targo, one of the thugs who's like the underling of Simon is informed that like, hey, the gold's not on the boat. It's just a bunch of useless metal in these containers that's supposed to have the gold. And that's when he runs into McLean, and we have the big showdown between the two of them. Very much like how 
uh, Carl and McLean fought in the first Die Hard movie. Yeah, this is a this is a brutal fight scene where like Bruce Willis is whipped around like a like a rag doll. <laughs> and like that's the one thing about he was ne- McLean was never or at least Bruce Willis was never afraid to get the crap kicked out of him and or if he knew he was going to have a comeback at the end. Yeah. Because like you hear stories today like like I don't know if it's like Vin Diesel or Jason Statham in the Fast and Furious movies. Like I can only be hit so many times before I hit back so many times. Like that's like in their contract. Like they can't look too weak in the movie. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think just kind of in my eyes, it seems like it screams a little insecurity. But um, Zeus catches up with uh, Simon. Um, with his and Zeus has a machine gun and tries to get the code from him. However, Simon takes the gun away from him. And says, "Hey, you got to take the safety off," and shoots Zeus in the leg. I know. Oh man, that that scene too. You're just that's one of those moments where you're just like, "You've got him! You've got him! Just shoot! Just shoot!" And he does, and the safety's on. Yeah, because I think it would be like I guess a cliche, like he would just like knows how to use a gun like oh because it's a movie everybody knows how to use guns if they really need to right um but i just love like jeremy irons is eating like a hard-boiled egg and he just like pops it in his mouth and grabs the gun he's like you know with his like mouth full of food he's like gotta take the safety off and then takes it off and just nonchalantly shoots him in the leg oh brutal um McLean takes out uh, Targo and heads to the bridge of the ship, trying to call for a Coast Guard while the the ship is trying to make its way out into Long Island Sound. Um, but that's when, at the same time, the cops realize we can't wait any longer, so they try and get all the kids out of the, the school. However, um, Zeus's nephews have gone away from all the other kids that are in the assembly hall and decide to play uh, cards in one of the classrooms. And when all the kids are evacuated from the school, um, they're locked inside. And so two of the cops have to go in there. Um, like you said, like Graham Greene and um, Colleen Camp, who plays Connie, they both go running in to grab the kids. And it's a it's a quick moment here, but when they go to the roof and try and jump from one building to the other because they can't get out of the building in time, they realize they're too far from the building, and just Connie just grabs all like like Connie just grabs all the kids and holds them to herself right before the bomb yeah. goes off. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's like there. There's nothing else for them to do, so they're just going to kind of all like cower together and and wait and at least hold on to each other. Yeah, and then even Charlie doesn't. He doesn't leave. He's like, I'm going to give this one shot and try and defuse the bomb. Yeah. But when he's about to cut the fuse, the sprocket on the bomb pops off and shoots out the liquid, and it's pancake syrup. Yep. That's when it cuts back to McLean and realizes, oh shit, when another bomb pops up into his periphery on the ship, he realizes the bomb wasn't in the school. That's when Simon and McLean come face to face, and I love the scene between the two of them where... McLean tries to get onto Simon's skin, and Simon's like, "No, nah, I'm not. I'm not falling for that. I'm not going to get angry for you like that." He's he's above that. He's not going to goat in Simon into getting too close to him. 
Yeah, yeah. He even he doesn't even say something about um, uh, Hans. Like he's like something like your brother was a dickhead or something like that. And at first, you see Jeremy Irons like tenses up, and then he laughs and he's like, "No, no, you're right. You've got his number. Yeah, he was <laughs> totally." <laughs> yeah because you don't know what he's how he's gonna react like um yeah where is this gonna go i know so mclean and zeus are tied to the bomb and they're gonna blow up all the gold and all the gold and sink it to the bottom of the long island sound as um as simon plays a tape recording to the coast guard um uh, revealing their true intentions and so all the people, all the, the goons are getting off the boat. However, Targo, who's miraculously alive, questions, uh, hey, what the hell's going <laughs> on? Where's yeah. the real gold? And his lover, who's actually involved with Simon, kills Targo because he's in the way. Yeah, and that's a really effective scene, too, because you just see her. You think she's going to shoot um, Simon. And then she just moves the gun off to the side. And they don't show Targo being killed. They show the reflection of the gunshots in a close-up of her eyes and Simon's eyes. It just really, like, it. without showing the violence, it seems even more brutal that way. Right, because it leads up to the imagination of the audience there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they get off the boat. McLean and Zeus are they're tied to the bomb. They think that they've resigned to their fate here, but McLean realizes like, no, the, the gold's somewhere else. Because I know the man, I know the family. He's he's uh, like doing a rope or dope. He's gonna make you think like the gold's here or not, but he's probably sleight of hand. He's moved it somewhere else in order to get out of the restraints. McLean re- re- takes out a, a metal splinter that's in his shoulder. Oh to, man. Oh. To use as a lockpick. I can not only, like, you can feel that in that scene, too, of him doing that. It's one of those one of those moments where, like, usually I can take a lot of, like, violence on film. But, like, something like that, I always have to look away. <laughs> I can't watch him do it. Right. It's only amplified because of the sound design. Like, you hear, like, the, like the stretching yeah, of no. it. Like, like, oh, jeez. And so Zeus is able to unlock the handcuffs from McLean, but accidentally drops the lockpick. But that's when the the bomb starts to arm itself. But like you mentioned before, McLean is quick thinking, takes a crowbar, pokes both um, chemicals onto the edge of the crowbar, and then smashes against the Zeus's handcuffs, blowing them up. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really good callback to the scene at the beginning when they were all in the. Precinct, and if you watch that early scene um, where Larry is demonstrating how the bomb works, they keep cutting to Bruce Willis to John McClane, really paying attention to what's going on. And when you see this, it all pays off, and that like he really was paying attention and knows how this bomb works. So um, you know, again, lends lends credibility to this scene. Yeah. So McClane helped Zeus hobble up to the, the top of the deck and then they go off the side and miraculously are able to get out of the way of the explosion as the the boat is leveled to the bottom of the sea. That's right. 
And imagine you're in Nassau County. You're on the beach, having a nice day. It's it's a summer day, and all of a sudden, just the a cargo ship that you see often just just blows up randomly. Like, how would you take that? <laughs> I know. I mean, uh, it's not not a good time to go up and get a burger and fries. You know, <laughs> you want to kind of be there and find out what's going on. <laughs> Seriously, and this is where like. A lot of people have had issues. I know, like, some critics said, like, the movie should have ended on the boat. There was a draft where the final confrontation was on the boat. And mm. that's how the movie ended. I don't know how you feel about that or not. Um, You know, it, it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, it's kind of one of those action movies where even watching it again... I kind of, first off, I kind of forgot how long the movie is because it's a little over two hours long. Um, and yeah, it does feel like you're watching like the, um, you're watching the scene with the school and you're saying, oh, no, it doesn't end here. And then you're watching the scene on the boat. And you're like, oh, no, it doesn't end here. Um, and then, you know, there's the scene uh, after it that we're going to talk about. But, you know, it doesn't really bother me. I feel like it's... Um, you know, when you're watching an action movie as well made as this one and as well paced as this one, um, I'll take a li- I'll take another action scene. I'll take another uh, action sequence as long as it's well done, which they all are here. Right. I mean, like, I don't think like emotionally you could have topped the almost blowing up of the school. Right. Um, so, like, there is credence to that. Like, it should have ended like with that. They're stopping that bomb. And I know. McLean, like, I know Bruce Willis said, like, he should be the one to help defuse the bomb at the end of the movie. Like, that should be the ending. Mm. Um, which, obviously, it didn't happen that way. And because at this point, uh, there was an alternate ending. Because after this, like, after they're rescued by the FBI agents and the cops, they realize, McLean realizes, yeah, the goal's not on there. And Gruber got away. Now, the original ending, it cuts to months later in Germany, and the aspirin bottle that uh, Simon gave him earlier on when they were on the boat, he tracks it back to a, phar- a pharmaceutical company in Germany that was, and it was sent to a pharmacy not too far from where he finds a very affluent uh, Simon reading the newspaper. And in this scene, McLean has been fired from the NYPD, because the FBI thinks he had some involvement with Gruber getting away. And so they decide to play a little bit of Russian roulette with this, like this weird, this small rocket launcher. However, they removed all the, the sights from it. So you don't know which end is which. And so they, huh. and so they, McLean gives him, gives Simon these kind of questions like, all of these riddles he has to solve, and every one he gets right, he's able to spin the rocket in, in clockwise. And it ends with um, him getting the last question right. Um, Simon hits the switch on the rocket. It shoots through him and blows up behind him. And McLean's like, takes off a flap jacket. Even if he uh, got shot, he would have uh, shot him with his gun that he had headed in his pocket. And... It ends on that dark note where, like, that the screenwriter reasoned, like, after this movie, he would have been a changed man psychologically. 
And that's why he won the kind of more of a downbeat ending for the movie. Huh. I don't know, like, personally, I don't know if that would have... I don't know if that would have worked for me, and I don't know if that would have worked for audiences either. Who it, it, That seems a little out of character for McLean. Um, and I think that really, we really would have had to... I think suspend our disbelief to think like, or he made it all the way over to Germany and tracked them down based on this aspirin bottle like that. I think that's asking more than what they put into the movie. I don't know how you feel. Like it's a well-acted scene, but I don't think it like you're right. I don't think it would have fit for the movie, especially for a blockbuster in 1995. I think it would have been too dour of a note to go out on. Yeah, I agree. Um, and you can find this on YouTube. Like, you say, like, Die Hard with Vengeance alternate ending, and it'll pop up. It's like a six-minute scene. It's well-acted. It's The dialogue is crackling all the way through. And so the ending we do have is that um, McLean realizes the aspirin bottle is from a Canadian hotel, and we cut to uh, north of the border where all the... Uh, German thieves are celebrating that they've gotten away with all this gold and they're all drinking champagne and we're going to, after a little bit, we're going to hop in our trucks and get out of there and be find out what country we want to buy now. And while yeah, right. the McLean, uh, not McLean, um, and Simon and the Targo's better half, the woman who killed Targo, they begin to knock boots but that's when <laughs> that's the nicest way I can say this. Um, a helicopter shines a light through the warehouse they're hiding in, and it's McLean and Zeus. For some reason, Zeus is there with him, bringing him to a dangerous scenario. But okay. <laughs> and they look like they just came from the dock of or the boat that they were standing on because they're still wearing the same clothes. Yeah. Uh, so all the cops and all the Mounties come together like it's the Untouchables to arrest all the uh, <laughs> uh, all the thieves here. But how do you feel about the set piece? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's well done. Um, you know, I, I love that. Again, I think it. When I first saw it, I didn't know what we were seeing here like we we saw you know like um jeremy irons and and all of them together with the gold and you know now they're going to uh you know now they've won so to speak and and you see the scene with him and the the girl in the the room and um all of a sudden the light shines in and you hear uh john mcclain's voice like oh we catch you at a bad time um i i love you know the whole helicopter thing afterwards because again i think that's a little unexpected the way that mclean takes down the helicopter by shooting the wires um i thought that was a pretty cool unique spin on you know the fact that he's waiting to see simon in the helicopter because the light is shining right in his eyes and he finally does see simon and you think oh this is it he's going to go ahead and shoot simon but instead he shoots uh, the wires and I thought you know they get tangled up in the the blades and I think that's just a really uh, cool ending for the villain right and it's a nice callback to the first Die Hard where when McLean faces off against Hans in the first one he only has two rounds left in his gun and uses that to oh, stop right. Ha- yeah. um, that's right Hans and his subordinate 
And the same thing here. He's got a little like 38 snub nose and fires off four rounds like it's nothing. And then he has only two rounds left to take down this helicopter. Now, I know criticism says like, why didn't Simon just blow him away while he stands there waiting to get a shot? And I can see that. I can see where people have that argument. But if you want to cover your ass that way, like, all right, have have a... Simon had to reload, and that's why they got into that position. Once he's reloaded, that's once he decides to shoot McLean. But I do like the effect of the helicopter being taken out by the the broken cables, resulting in their crash and blowing up. Yeah, and then of course his yippee ki line that he gets in there. So, oh yeah, and his, that's well, cool. Of course, and uh, another odd jump cut when you watch this on TV. It's like. Helicopter blows up and then just cuts to him walking back to Zeus, who's recovering from their helicopter crash. They, they cut out the line entirely. They don't even bother censoring it. Oh, wow. So it's super awkward how they end that movie. And I'm like, oh, it's it's odd. But so, yeah, the goons are arrested. Um, Simon is uh, dead. Um, and then Zeus says, like, hey. You left your wife on the phone earlier. Like, here's a quarter. Call her back. And that's when it's like, you don't know my wife. She can be She can be a very stubborn wo- woman. And Zeus retorts, like, well, she had to be to be married to you. <laughs> and isn't it quaint to give somebody a quarter to make a phone call? Isn't that just, isn't that just a throwback? <laughs> Today you'd hand them your phone and say, here, use my phone. Go ahead, call her. Yeah, I mean, it, that might be the most 90s thing about this movie, is the right. hand of the quarter used the, the payphone. But um, final thoughts on Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, this is a really effective action movie, a really effective thriller. Um, great New York movie, great shots of the city. It uses New York as not just a backdrop, but at times almost like a character and uses it effectively. Uh, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson have great chemistry in this movie. Um, Very true to the character of John McClane. It feels very fitting to what he would do. So it feels like with that whole follow through of the Hans Gruber brother in Simon, um, it feels very much connected to the other two movies. Uh, Masterfully directed by John McTiernan, um, who does a fantastic job, as we said, not just with the action scenes, but even the smaller scenes as well. And I think in many ways, um, even though it's a big summer popcorn action movie or end of summer popcorn action movie, I think it does try to say something about, um, you know, law enforcement, about society, about um, relations in society, um, and also, you know, about violence in the world uh, as well. And it's uh, subtle and at times not so subtle uh, ways. So if I were giving Die Hard with a Vengeance a letter grade, I would give it a solid A. Fantastic. And I think you're right. I think it it is... It is really something to behold here because it's not just... I, I know, like, the common criticism of Die Hard, too, like you mentioned prior, is that it's just a... It's a Xerox of the first movie, just in a different locale. Yeah. And this one decides to change it up a little bit. It does become like a buddy cop movie for the uh, for this film, which becomes the kind of default mode for 
the Die Hard movies going forward. So it, it like even if you don't like this movie, it had a lasting effect on the entire series. And as the end of the summer movie and as a blockbuster movie, it's it's something to behold because like yeah, this movie was made on a ninety million dollar budget and it was the highest grossing movie that year of uh, three hundred sixty six uh, million dollars worldwide. Um, to see New York film this way, that's like you don't get to see that often anymore. I just made me like it made me nostalgic for that though that kind of filmmaking. Seeing McTiernan just being a visual storyteller in an action set piece and a dialogue scene because there are times where like like I mentioned before, like action scenes are great, but then it comes to dialogue and it comes to screeching to a halt. But no, McTiernan makes it interesting. It's the reason why he's one of the filmmakers I will I'll sit down and like, alright, how does he cover the scene camera wise? And I'm like, alright, so this person comes from this side of the frame and goes to that side of the frame, the camera moves in this direction, how does this cut together? And really go to school, go to school on his movies because they're so inventive in their approach to filmmaking. And Die Hard with the Vengeance is no exception. And yes, there there's some there's some coincidences and maybe some weird inconsistencies of like what could happen and the ending. Some people have their mixed feelings about, but I really enjoy it. Sure, you can chalk it up to nostalgia if you want to, but if it's one of those movies you have not watched in a while or you're like haven't watched it in at all i highly recommend it if i was giving it a letter grade i'd give it i'd give it a solid a as well all right we yeah. also have to uh we have to note one thing there is there is a nice nod in the movie to pulp fiction too um at the beginning of the movie where uh, he talks about how he was on suspension and he was sitting home and smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. And that's a nod to lyrics of a song that Bruce Willis's character is listening to in Pulp Fiction. So that's kind of a, a fun little hidden Easter egg there. Yeah, it, it, it's a nice little like, like if you're aware of it, like, oh, like, 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 oh, you see what they did there. And it's not like yep. one of those things yeah. just like obnoxious and you as an audience member sitting there wondering, like, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Um, now, Michael, where can people find you on the interwebs? They want to keep up with you, whatever your writings or podcasting is going on. Yeah, so um, I am on Twitter at mlionsfl. I have a blog, Screensaver, a retro review of TV shows and movies of yesteryear, which is at screensaverblog.blogspot.com. And um, I host a podcast with Andy DiGenova and Hunter Fagan called Disorder, Every Disney Film, where we take a look at each Disney animated film in chronological order. Very nice. And I highly recommend that show for those who have not checked it out, um, as well as your articles, because I love reading. I just read your airplane one uh, earlier today. Thank you. Thank you. That's actually for, I wrote that for another blog called Q... It's community, but it's cumnerdity, um, and it's uh, cumnerdity.com, um, and they've got a lot of fun uh, articles on there about animation and TV and just pop culture in general, so I highly recommend them for anyone who's into movies, too. Fantastic. And if you want to keep up with me on the social medias, you can find me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, uh, my other podcast, part of the Real Fans Network, much like Disorder is, uh, please rewind the RF Forearm Retro Show. Uh, 
where myself, uh, Jamie Julie, and Guy Milks talk about movies when it comes to anniversaries. Very similar to what we did tonight with uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. And you can find that show and along with Disorder and all the other uh, podcasts, part of the Real Fans Podcast Network at rf4rm.com. And if you want to keep up with what I do filmmaking-wise, you can go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash through the lens productions through as if you're going through a window and you find my latest video which was actually a promo for the previous episode when was myself and mike wilson announcing they were doing our series on the halloween movies one good scare has come back but we're doing commentary tracks now and so if you're going to see the little announcement video on that youtube channel go to youtube.com slash through the lens productions uh, Michael, I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your evening to talk Die Hard with a Vengeance with me. Oh, thank you. Always uh, great to be on uh, podcast with you, and I always appreciate you asking me. So thank you very much. Of course, and I, I'm internally grateful that you agree to come back every time. Um, come back next time, everybody. If I'll be internally grateful for you, too. Uh, subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode, and li- leave us a five-star written review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out there. Come back next time to continue to talk about movies and pop culture uh, and all the kind of geeky stuff. And we'll be speaking to you soon.